Hello again. I'm Michael Lee, the Publicity Chair for the Magnetism and Magnetic Materials Conference coming up on October 31st in Minneapolis. You're about to hear the next installment in the series we've been working on with invited speakers and other notable attendees for the conference. My guest today is Dr. Chris Layton, the distinguished McKnight University Professor of Chemical Engineering and Materials Science at the University of Minnesota. Among other roles at MMM 2022, Dr. Layton will be presenting an invited talk in the Complex Oxide session. During our conversation, he covered everything from research inspiration to the perks of Minneapolis. I'll let Dr. Layton take it from here. Yeah, so um, I guess I'll introduce myself, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm Chris Layton. I'm on the faculty of the University of Minnesota. Uh, I'm in chemical engineering and material science. That's my home department. I also have uh, an appointment in physics uh, at the University of Minnesota. So local to the conference, which is exciting for us this year. Um, yeah, and my research obviously involves magnetism. Um, I've been going to the MMM conference for more than 20 years since I was a postdoc, actually. Uh, really central conference for me. It's the one that I immediately pencil in my calendar, you know, every time I'm going to go to it. Um, so I work on electronic and magnetic properties of materials in general. So magnetism probably is about 50 plus percent of what we do in my group. Um, we really sort of work at the interface between material science and physics. And we try and work on problems that are, you know, really rich uh, fundamentally, some tough questions to answer, but at the same time are use inspired, right? We want to work on things that have some direct relevance to technology, maybe not so close to technology that, you know, it's something that a company could do, for instance, in magnetic recording, um, but, you know, in that sweet spot where it's a little bit further out from technological application where that sort of fundamental exploration could really have an impact. Um, so in terms of specifics, things that we work on right now, um, metallic spintronics is something that I work on and we've been working on for some time. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, a mix of fundamental and applied. We are interested in that for next generation uh, recording head concepts, um, but also to understand spin relaxation in non-magnetic metals. Um, my group works quite a bit on complex oxides. Magnetic complex oxides are going to be what I'm talking about in my invited talk at the upcoming conference. Um, we also work on complex sulfides, and some of those have become very interesting magnetically recently, things like magnetic wild semi-metals, which I'm very interested in. And then in the past, we've also worked with complex alloys, and we've done some work also with magnetic nanoparticles. So, so pretty broad, we work on, you know, some bulk materials sometimes, also thin films all the way down to nanoscale devices. Yeah, and so like you, you know, just laid out, um, could you talk more about the effort it takes on your part and your team to sustain such a varied um, collection of projects within your group? That's not all the things you've just listed, you wouldn't necessarily expect one, one university team to be, to be tackling all of that. Right, yeah, it, it is a tough balance um, because you, know, you, ha you have to sort of, as a professor, I think at all levels, at some point you have to kind of trade the breadth versus the depth. And you, you certainly don't want to be a jack of all trades and a, you know, a master of none, as they say. Um, so it is a challenge. On the other hand, the, the reason I've always been drawn to doing work in so many different areas, honestly, I just find so much stuff interesting, right? I'm just interested by so many things. I mean, all the time I'm kind of trying to rein myself back from thinking, oh, this is, 
I see some really interesting material or device or new concept and you know, I wanna try it out. So it's hard for me to be narrow. I find that to be stimulated by the work and keep excited about what I'm doing, I, I have to have it be a little bit broader. Um, and there is a downside, right? Which is, you know, if you're really focused in a given area, you can, you can learn all the literature very well. You can keep up very easily with everything. It's more of a challenge to do that when you're working on, you know, five or six different topics that get a little bit broader. But the payoff for me is big in terms of my own learning. And I also see, I've worried at times in my career, what's the impact on the students? But the feedback from the students on this topic, you know, the fact that there are other people in the group who are working on things that are very different to them has always been so positive because they feel like they're learning about things that they would never have been exposed to otherwise. And I've had so many students and postdocs leave the group and say, you know, don't, don't ever change that. That was one of the best things about working in your group. So um, that's kind of a, a big plus for me that I get that positive feedback about it. Yeah. And within the group, um, are students and postdocs crossing over between projects or do they, you know, the nature of their responsibilities, do they have to focus primarily on, on one, one area? Um, a bit more focused, I, I would say, in general. So, you know, um, my group is sort of set up so that we have small teams working on each one of those projects. Um, but one thing I do encourage my students, and I, I think a lot of people do, right, it's a very common tactic is... If they're doing well and you know after maybe year two or something like that and they're a qualified phd student then you know take on this side project take on the other side project get involved in this collaboration and then sort of gradually broaden out what they're doing they might not be able to immediately take that over when they begin their phd studies but by the end when they're getting independent um, they can do that and, and really broaden their horizons uh, on research mm -hmm. And not to put too fine a point on it, but would you be willing to kind of walk through your process for engaging with, 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 with a new topic that's quite distinct? You know, is it talking with colleagues or just general familiarization over time to the point where you say, yeah, I want to get into this. And then kind of the second part of that, mm -hmm. at what point do you then have the confidence to feel like you and your team are capable of contributing unique discoveries to a field that you know, you're, you're relatively new to compared to other experts. Right, yeah, great questions. And the answer to the first question is real, really, I mean, it depends. It depends on the exact topic. I mean, I've gotten drawn into things in, in totally different ways. I mean, it could be something I see at a conference. It could be something where, you know, I'm, I'm reading papers in the literature and then you just sort of connect something and you wonder, you know, could this be applied to X instead of Y? Um, but I, I can give you a couple specific examples also. A, a yeah, lot of times, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the chemical engineering and material science department. So my department's also very broad, right? I mean, we have like 30 plus faculty. Some of them are doing bioengineering. Some people like me working on hard materials. So I'm exposed to a lot of different things. I'll give you one example. We actually have an active project in my group, which is easily the furthest out from everything else we work on, which is photovoltaics. And I got involved in sulfide photovoltaics. I mean, talk about a long route to something because... When I was an assistant professor, I worked on half metallic ferromagnetism, right? So this is back in the early 2000s, that was a very hot topic. And we worked on some materials that were sulfide based, cobalt iron disulfide for that application. And, you know, I worked on that for five, six, seven years, something like that. And then basically it sort of died off. And then I had a colleague who, who was fresh to our department, a chemical engineering colleague who was interested in photovoltaics. And he asked me if I knew about this new 
area of earth abundant non-toxic photovoltaics based on sulfides. And of course, you know, I had no idea that that was going on. And it turns out that some of the materials that we were using back then as the non-magnetic dopants in half-metallic ferromagnets were actually right at the front of people's mind for photovoltaics. So you can imagine at that point, didn't take me much to get involved with him. He brought the expertise in, in photovoltaics and we knew how to make these sulfides, which are actually kind of tricky to synthesize. And it just started from there, right? So that's that's kind of one example. Yeah, and what's the, what's the form factor? Are these thin films, is it powder? Um, well, we work on bulk, so these are semiconductors. So, you know, quality of the materials has to be pretty high. So we work on, on bulk single crystals, really mm -hmm. highly pure, quite high mobility uh, semiconducting crystals to understand the, the basic science. But ultimately they're for thin film photovoltaics. Yep. So you have to translate that to thin film. So, so we also make thin film sulfide based. Um, iron sulfide pyrite is one of them. Uh, another is uh, copper two zinc tin sulfur four, which is this kesterite material. Um, the, the ingredients are that you have non-toxic earth abundant elements. Mm -hmm. um, that can be used in thin film solar cells, potentially at very low materials cost compared to silicon. Right. Yeah, which is getting away from magnetism by quite a bit, but it started <laughs> in magnetism is my, is my point. Well, that's, yeah, you never know where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, so and your second, uh, second question, I should also try to ask you a second <laughs> question too. How long does it take? I mean, I can give you an example right now. So my group at the moment is working um, very intensively on a, uh, on a material um, in the delafossite structure. It's a metallic delafossite um, materials that have only recently, fairly recently been realized to be really quite spectacular in their properties and it did take a while. I mean, we started from nothing. And, uh, you know, I had just initially one student working on this project and, and, and it took us two years basically to say, yeah, we have something completely new. We had a new synthesis route and it ended up with actually slightly improved properties in some sense and actually quite large improvements in other senses. And we're just publishing our first papers now. So yeah, you gotta be prepared to put in that length of time to get some payoff. Um, on the other hand, I know that that's a topic that I'm gonna be working on for, for some time because it's it's very active area and really interesting. Mm -hmm. Great. So then, on, so on the other hand, we just talked about having varied research projects. Um, it seems to me, looking at your 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 research history, there there are other topics like perovskite cobaltites that you they've really persisted with for over a long period of time. And so I'm curious how you what motivates you to keep coming back? Does each new experiment keep opening up more and more questions for you, or has there been an inherent question or motivation from the beginning that you that you've always been searching towards in that in that material system yeah uh, it's a good question it, it really evolves so that specific example i mean cobalt-based perovskites actually um i don't know whether i'm proud or ashamed to admit when i started working on cobalt-based perovskites but it was 2001 okay mm -hmm. so it's 21 years ago i guess um but the work we do now is totally different than the work we did then. So same material system, which we've learned an enormous amount about. Um, same general material system. Of course, you know, there's dozens of them that we've worked on, um, but we're using it for completely different things. So early on, we did fundamental magnetism in that system, things like magnetic phase separation and so on. And then we sort of morphed that into doing 
complex oxide heterostructures using the cobaltites, which is, you know, a pretty hot area in magnetism, it still is. And then nowadays we've moved to completely different things like strain tuning those systems, which is what I'm gonna talk about in, in my invited talk at the MMM. Um, we also use electric field control of those systems using electrolyte gating. So there it was one materials platform that allowed us to do a whole bunch of different things. And so the work ends up being really radically different than it was 20 years ago, but just has a material in common, which is this, this class of perovskites. Yeah, you feel the cobaltites are just the medium that you have this expertise to explore all of these physical phenomena, is that? Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly when we've, we've worked on things in the cobaltites, we've ended up expanding to other materials, like with electrolyte gating, for instance, which is a big part of my research program now. We probably applied that to a dozen different material systems, but the one we did first was, uh, a, you know, a prototypical cobaltite system because it was a system we understood so well. Mm -hmm. And so, at the beginning, you mentioned you like to focus on, you know, more fundamental studies of, of material properties. Um, but what what is the closest that you've been in 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 your work to a more just a more product ready? discovery and how how did you proceed from there yeah i mean you know quite a few times we've we've gotten to that level i mean um early on when i was a postdoc uh, i i worked on exchange bias for instance right so anti-ferromagnet ferromagnet interfaces which at, at those times was you know really a struggle to understand what was going on and was already it was very weird because it was already in products right so people were using it in hybrid spin valves and magnetic tunnel junctions eventually uh, without fully understanding everything that was going on at that interface so that that was interesting because we were sort of working on the technology that was already working right mm -hmm. um and back then um you know I, I started working on magnetic tunneling so um you know that ended up in products which are now in hard disk drives, which is, is very interesting to see. Um, and that kind of things has sort of happened throughout my research career. And right now, I think the aspect where I see it the most is in the metallic spin transport stuff that we do, um, where, you know, the, the kind of, we use non-local spin valves to measure spin transport. Um, and those things are serious contenders for next generation read heads in this thing called a spin accumulation sensor. Yeah. So certainly lots of fundamental questions, but really is uh, problems that we need to solve to, to try and get these devices and materials actually used. Yeah. And not to, not to steal your, your ideas here, but is there, um, you know, an effort or idea in magnetism right now that, that you're very optimistic about or very curious about something that you, you know, you pay attention to, you're not about to jump into it yourself, but, but you like to follow along. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch. I mean, one of them, the one that springs to my mind immediately is, of course, 2D, 2D magnets. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's been sort of inevitable, but nevertheless, very interesting, right? Because the 2D craze got so huge. It was never, I don't know, it seemed pretty obvious to me that eventually magnetism would impinge on that. And it has... And, you know, lots of really interesting material systems. Some of the phenomena people are seeing are really incredible, right? And, and you've got to wonder if all of the selling points of 2D are also going to apply potentially eventually in, in magnetic um, technology. So I would say that area for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I would say another is 
And again, it was sort of inevitable, but the intersection of topology with, with magnetism, right? Um, so I think of things like skirmions, but I, I also think of um, some that we are starting to work on, like, like magnetic wild semi-metals, for instance. I think that is a really interesting area where um, the potential payoff is huge. And, and I think we only sort of know a little bit about how big that might be. So those are a couple of examples. To be honest, there's more things that I keep an eye I, on. No doubt. <laughs> no, those two big ones. Yeah. And so to, to change gears a little bit, um, it's my understanding that you're a, a, a fairly well-regarded instructor uh, amongst graduate students and undergraduates at the University of Minnesota. Um, so I was hoping you could. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard from some people. Okay, um, that's good. You've got inside information. Yeah. Well, I won't. I won't disclose my sources. <laughs> um, but I was hoping you would maybe have some some advice or, or thoughts to share with with new or aspiring professors on the importance of your teaching responsibilities um, in in that in that role. Yeah, and you know it is really important. I mean, I'm I'm thankful. So I, I came. Uh, straight from postdoc to this department. In this department, um, the, all, all of my peers and, and, and people I looked up to, the sort of senior members of my department, all put serious effort and emphasis on teaching, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, it's a big part of what we get paid for as faculty members to teach undergrads and grad students, right? So um, yeah, I always put a lot of effort into it, but I, I always found it wasn't that hard to put a lot of effort into teaching because you know it's, it is actually fun, right? I mean, it's, it's a big time sink, but on the other hand, um, it's a challenging thing to do. It's a fun thing to do. I've always enjoyed it. Um, it's kind of amazing to me, you know, I mean, I've been doing it for 21 years, but somehow every semester brings up something new <laughs> that I haven't, especially in the last few years, right, for obvious reasons, um, but brought up something new that sort of still challenges me. Um, so, yeah, it is a balance between research and teaching, and people view the balance in different ways, but... I've, I've always enjoyed it. I've I found it, it's in some way, it's like a little break from research. Um, but I would also say that, you know, sometimes things go back and forth between teaching and research. It's not like there are no research ideas that come out of teaching, especially when you take on a new class and you broaden your own horizons by teaching something you've never taught before. Um, that, that can bring some interesting new ideas. Uh, and also, you know, just in your own core topics, like in electronic and magnetic, materials like if I'm teaching an 8,000 level class on that that definitely sharpens my skills there's no doubt about that so it does have some some impact I think on my my research as well but yeah a balance but I think you know it's a balance where the right kind of happy medium can be found mm -hmm. yeah and so my last question here is from Yayoi um we know the conference isn't in Hawaii this year, but is there anything you can say <laughs> to get people excited about visit, visiting your longtime home of Minneapolis? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was referring to 2014. I was general chair of the MMM and, and I, 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 I lucked out. I was the person who got Honolulu um, and it was, it was big, right? It turned out to be, I think it was the biggest MMM conference we've ever had. So people really like going to Hawaii. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this, this conference, for me, it's obviously exciting because it's in Minneapolis, but 
uh, I think from a number of perspectives, it shapes up to be really good. I mean, I've seen the list of the, um, the special sessions. I've seen the list of the invited speakers and the symposia. They all look phenomenal. I think um, Minneapolis is kind of a great place to have the MMM conference. We're going to have a lot of local industry people, like from Seagate, for instance. We're going to have a lot from the University of Minnesota. It's pretty central, very easy to get here, as you know, and um, a great city to visit. And the part of downtown where we're having the conference um, is, is actually kind of a, a nice place to have a conference because there's a lot of stuff to do, uh, a lot of places to eat and go visit after the conference is done. So I, I think it's a great venue and, you know, fingers crossed that the weather's okay. <laughs> Anything can happen around about that time, but, you know, it, it could be very nice. We'll see. You know. I think it's going to be great. Chris, Paul, weather. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's all. That's all I had to uh, to talk to you about. Uh, keep it keep it quick here. Um, but is there anything else that you wanted to get the word out on? Um, um, you know, I would just uh, maybe emphasize this conference is tremendous. Uh, you know, the Magnetism and Magnetic Materials Conference. We have to support this, and everybody needs to keep coming to this because this is a tremendous venue. Um, for me, you know, I mean, every year I pencil two things into my calendar that I know I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to the APS March meeting and I know I'm going to go to the MMM or the joint when it's joint with the Intermac. Um, so I, I think it's important that the community comes together, really supports MMM because uh, it's a conference you can go to and just learn so much. Yeah. I would like to thank Dr. Layton once again for participating in this series. Look for him and his research group at the conference in an assortment of sessions, including complex oxides, electronic structure and critical phenomena, as well as spin transport.